I don't know if we've ever had um, a situation uh, like we've had over the last couple of years um, where our leaders, the government, have had such a responsibility or have been in a position for them to give such specific details and instructions about everyday life. I don't know, I wasn't around in World War II, I'm guessing maybe, um, maybe it was similar then, but I think over the last years, our leaders have been in positions where they've been given really specific, really specific details on how uh, we should live. And I guess uh, the reason for that is that we've said that COVID is everywhere, and the instructions that we need to give in terms of our deal with that need to be on everything. So it's uh, stand here, only go here uh, once a day, um, don't sing. Three households can come together, but not four households can come together. Six people, we had the rule of six. Do you remember the rule of six? We had all of these uh, details. Now, for various reasons, I think probably fatigue, um, the practicalities of life, but probably mostly at the moment, I'm trying to think of a kinder word, hypocrisy, reputation, the next person who has to stand behind the lectern and tell us that we are locked down or has to start giving hardline messages about how we're going to live is going to find it really hard to find an audience, I think. Do you think that? No matter, it doesn't matter which political party it is, which leader it is, who it is. It's going to be really difficult for, for them to find people who are willing to listen. I think we have listen fatigue with that. Our politicians are not the only people who are in this position, I think, finding difficulty gaining an audience, uh, being in the need to give out lots of instructions about everyday life. Um, I think, in a similar way, church leaders find themselves in that, in that same predicament, in that same um, set of circumstances, giving out instructions on everything. So listen to these instructions. Um, I've not, they're not, they're not going to be up on the text for you. It's pulled from Colossians. These are the kind of things uh, that, that people, uh, I guess like me, people who stand behind lecterns, people who try and preach God's word need to talk about, um, and it's rules for holy living. These are the kind of instructions that we find ourselves giving. This is, this is um, what Paul says to the church of Colossae. Put to death and listen how involved and how specific and see if you feel any fatigue or see if you'll start thinking, I wonder if he manages to do any of this stuff. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. How are you doing so far? Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has got a grievance against someone, forgive, as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which bind them together in perfect unity. And this is just one of many passages in the New Testament that I guess people like me stand up and preach for various reasons. I guess we think sin is all around us. The fall is, permeates all of our life. So we need instructions for all of our life. And for various reasons, I guess, cultural change, a different perspective broadly on God, but probably as well, in a similar way to the politicians, we look at our church leaders over 2,000 years and go, really? We shout, hypocrisy, 
And the people behind the lecterns, when talking about stuff like holiness, when we see church people behind the lecterns, they find it really difficult to get people to listen and to go, really, you're going to tell me about holiness again for us to incline our ear and go, right, tell me some more about how I need to live holy because we live in the real world, because the world changes and because we see through, we see through people. We struggle to listen. The world struggles to listen, especially about holiness. I want to talk today about holy ground. What is holy ground? There is a biblical idea. Maybe you can think of stories like Moses in the desert. I think that's the story that the children are getting next door. Moses and the burning bush where God meets him in the desert and he says to him, you need to take your shoes off because this is holy ground. There's a narrative in the Bible that says that God presences himself in such a way that the very earth around us changes. These are stories of history from the Bible. The ground becomes holy when God is there. I don't know what you think about that. Can that happen? Millions, I looked it up, 200 million every year make pilgrimages across the world, set off, go on huge long journeys to try and find what? To try and find ground that they perceive as holy. I would say that more than 200 million, I would say almost all of us have a holy space that we go to. We have a place in our minds, and it might be like the back garden, a bench in the back garden, a walk through the woods, a wood that you know, that is our place to go where we are above the noise where we feel like we can get away from it all and we can think about bigger things. We have a separate space. For some people, and I overheard a few people talking about this, in fact, when we were chatting about this over coffee at the start, for some people, that place is here. It's church. God comes amongst us. And we think to ourselves, is, is there something special about this place? What is that? Can we, can we go along with that? How do we feel about this idea that God can change things in such a way that the ground around us can become holy? What is holy ground? So I've got two uh, mini tasks as we work our way through uh, the text that Holly read out for us. Uh, the first one is I want to talk about what holy ground looks like. Is it a thing? What should we do about it? Holy ground, what it looks like, and why I believe that even though the leaders are all flawed, and we've got fatigue from hearing instruction, we should bend our ear uh, when we read in through passages of holiness like that. We should really listen in and continue uh, to listen into holiness. So what is holiness and why we should try and keep on listening to it? And I'm going to talk about it via two stories. I don't know if the text can pop back up again. Well done, tech team, for um, resolving all these issues. Um, we're going to look at the story that's in Hebrews and the story, of, as is often, the, it seems to be often the way in the Bible, uh, that when God's word tries to teach us about holiness, it seems to be on a mountain, or it seems to involve mountains. So these two stories are based on two mountains. Now, maybe you'll know this first mountain that is referenced in this passage. It's Sinai. If you don't know the mountain so much, you maybe know what happened on Mount Sinai. God's people had been wonderfully rescued by him. He was their redeemer God from Egypt. He pulled them out. It was a miracle. 
because there were slaves there, and he pulled them out, and he said, I'm going to meet you in the desert. And you have this moment where he does meet them in a physical way in the desert, and they go to this mountain, and you know what happened? The Ten Commandments come down. But when they get there to what you maybe think in the back of your mind should be an awesome party, an incredible meeting, a coming together. Maybe they had ideas in their head that they would spend time with this God. I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but when they get to the mountain, and when you read what the mountain was like, you'd read more thoroughly about it in Exodus 19, but there's a sort of a paraphrase of it up here. They, it was horrendous. It was terrifying. This is the God that had pulled them out of Egypt, and their encounter with him in real life, in a physical mountain, was, was terrifying. He was too powerful. He was too perfect. So God is, God is up the mountain, and the the, narrative, the Bible takes us down the road. It, it gives us a picture in our minds. It gives us a spectacle in our minds. You've got all of Israel camped out down below, and you've got crazy loud thunder. You've got, you've got bright lights. You've got smoke everywhere. It's, it's a spectacle that the Bible gives you, and it's a terrifying spectacle. And when, when we read about what the people thought about this, when they were faced with the voice of God, and the commandments that Moses came down with, they say in, um, in this little text here, I can't see which verse it is, they say that it's overwhelming. They say, they say we don't want to hear any more. This is the God that's redeemed. We've been traveling ages, ages to meet him, and we don't want to hear any more of what he's got to say. He's too perfect. It's just an unbearable weight. In fact, he's so holy, the advice coming out of Moses is, is we need to put parameters around this we need to put parameters around the mountain so nobody gets drawn into it. And if anyone, you see anyone heading that way, you can shoot them. It's better to shoot them than they face God because he's so holy. It's maybe not what they were expecting as they journeyed to meet God. I think this gives us a real insight into how we deal with holiness today in 2022. It kind of resonated. It resonated with me. Maybe it resonates with you, with your encounters with holiness. Something really powerful that we can't see. Remember, the people are on the ground and God's up the mountain. Don't come up. Dishing out commands. Dishing out commands that are actually incredibly difficult, like that list in Colossians that I've just read. Incredibly difficult for us to keep. Overwhelming. The list. Even just, even just 10, and if you read through um, Leviticus, there's loads more of these. Even just the 10, when you boil it down to the 10. Overwhelming, overwhelming hearing the voice of somebody really perfect demanding anything of anybody else. And it was just impossible for them to reach. This is the reality. We're thinking about holy ground, who God is, and the Bible, it doesn't pull any punches with God. It doesn't try and sneak God in. It doesn't try to give him a smiley face. It doesn't. Not in the New Testament or the Old Testament. It says this is God. The reality of him, when you meet him, when you walk towards holy ground, it's terrifying, it's overwhelming. You'd wish you weren't there and you might well shoot your mate if you saw him heading in that direction. That might be the kinder, better thing to do. But that's just the first mountain of this story. And crucially, and I think the key to these two passages are the first couple of lines of each little paragraph. That is not where, even though that's a reality, that's not where the Bible says that we meet him. This is, um, 
these two little stories about these two mountains are, I think, a, a rhetoric device um, that the writer of Hebrews uses to emphasize something. He's emphasizing the beauty of the second mountain by talking to you about the first mountain. Do you notice in the first mountain what he says about it? He says, you're not here. He gives them an example of where you're not going to go. It's one of those moments where you emphasize the first thing to really emphasize the awesomeness of the second thing. So um, quite often in our house, we'll be having family days out and we'll probably have in mind something that would be quite ordinary to do in the afternoon. McDonald's and, you know, gravity or something like that. But to make that sound amazing, what we'll say is, you know your auntie, whatever she's called, I don't need to give details of names, she's, you know auntie, so-and-so, she wants to show you this and she wants to go around and show you her slides, thought we could spend some time there, a couple of hours just chatting, you know how you like chatting in people's houses, everybody likes that, don't you? Do you know her? Well, everyone sat in the car, like, dropped, oh man, well we're not going there, that's not where we're going, we are going to McDonald's and Gravity, yes, big shouts, brilliant, so you emphasize the place that you're not going in order to impact the place that you are actually going, that is the basis, that is the prompter of this, this text, this is where Hebrews is heading, we're not going to meet God there, that's the reality of who God is, but we don't meet him there, look where we meet him, verse 22 to 24, You've come to Mount Zion. To this, so I want us to think about what holy ground is. I think this is holy ground. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So try and wrestle with it. Think this is what I should say in holy ground is. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels, as Paul prayed in his prayer, in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and, and try and follow this, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. This is where you meet him. This is the mountain that you meet him on. What's he talking about? What's holy ground? I don't think here he's talking about a physical mountain, the next place that they're going to go to where all this is going off. He's talking to a He's talking to and about a group of people who've become the very embodiment of all of that God's people living on Mount Jerusalem, living around there, should be. God's people in God's place under his rule and reign. He's saying that is what this is like. Where is that? What is that ground? Verse 22, it says, it's the same living God that's there. See that? This is the same fierce God that terrifies. It's the same terrifying holy spectacle. There's angels everywhere. It's enough to scare you half to death. It's the same judge. See that verse 22, I think it is. It's the same commands. It's the same. It's the same place, essentially. It's the same covenant. Let's talk about a covenant there. It's the same rules that should completely overwhelm us. And there's still holiness needed. Do you see that? There's still holiness needed there. But you are able to go there. You're able to dwell there. You're able to not shoot your mate when you see him running towards it. You're able to presence yourself there. Why? Do you see in the text, why are you able to go there? Because of the person mediating the covenant. It's not Moses, it's Jesus. It's a different mediator. And the different mediator means that we can be there. And you see the blood that's spilt? 
You see what holiness felt like on the first mountain outside Sinai? Terrible and oppressive, just, but still necessary and still real. There's a different aroma on this mountain. There's the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? It must have stunk when Cain killed Abel. It stunk of injustice. It stunk ever since of injustice. And yet on this mountain, we read of a better need of spilt blood. Jesus' blood spilled on the cross, and it doesn't stink of injustice. It screams justice for everyone. How can we not listen? How can we not listen to rules and instructions and the Bible screaming to us about holy when we realize that God meets us in this place, when we realize that there is a reality to who God is and it's terrifying. That's who God is. God doesn't shirk that. The Bible doesn't shirk that. That's who God is. And yet he meets us here where we can stand where we can draw breath, where we can walk around, where we can enjoy the benefits of justice, whether we can, even though this covenant that we've got is overwhelming, where we can be. And it becomes a benefit to us, not just a chore on our backs. This is what holy ground is. Holy ground is the actions and steps of people who know that the holiness of God who know what the holiness of God should mean for them. They know that what should be coming their way, if they meet God, should leave them terrified, should leave them feeling like they need to run away. And yet, because of God's grace, they realize that they're able to stay. That is what holy ground is. People who live in that grace. And Paul, when he writes to the church at Ephesus, puts it like this. I don't know if this text is available to us. Ephesians 2, um, 8 and 10. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Where is the holy ground? What is the holy ground? If it's not a real mountain, what is God making holy? It's the people. It's us. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, Paul gives them a gentle reminder to the church at Corinth. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are holy ground when you live inside of that grace, when you realize how holy God is and what it means for you, and yet you realize that you're able to be there. The actions that permeate from that realization, from placing yourselves there, that is holy ground. So it means that we don't get to boast about anything. The holy ground, it should give us a little bit of a shiver up our spines. It gives me a little bit of one just now when I think about it. The holy ground, the thing that God makes holy, the way that people see holy, is the people who accept his grace, is us. We are the ones that are being made holy. The holy ground is seen in our footsteps when we take actions that are soaked in grace that result from us being continuously blown away by how much God has loved us and how secure we are in him. That is holy ground. That's what it looks like. It's us. 
So that's the first. We've got, we've got a reason to listen. We've got a reason to listen because God meets us in an incredible place. But we've got one more reason to listen. That I'll be honest, as I've prepped, I've gone back and forth from this. It's the last bit of the reading. And I've gone back and forth from this because it's left me really uneasy. We listen because God shows us grace and he meets us where we don't deserve to be met. And he, he means that we can spend time with him, have fellowship with him. We can dwell where he is. It's ridiculous. So we listen. That's a reason to listen. But we also listen, I think, because, well, this is a reason we should listen, because the world's going to shake. You see that in the text? And it's God. This is why I had real trouble with it. Just couldn't get it off my mind all week. It's God that's going to shake it. Paul again, I don't know if you knew what was coming, but Paul again prayed this in his prayer at the start. You should listen because the world's going to shake. And God is the one that's going to shake it. And only the holy ground will remain. Let me read through how he explains that. See to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. You should listen. If they didn't escape when they refused him and who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven? And at that time, his voice shook the earth. And now he's promised, having shook it already, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. He takes us, and he take, took me uncomfortably, I think, to a a point of pivot. I think that the Bible does this. It doesn't just tell us God's nice. It tells us he's holy. And there are aspects that we read about God which maybe mean that we can get away with not going to that pivot. We can think about his love. We can think about other parts. When we engage with his holiness or when we investigate him fully, whenever we investigate him fully, whenever we read the Bible fully, it takes us to a point of pivot. That's where we are here. When we read something like God is going to shake the world, and holiness counts in this respect. What do we do? In part, you come away from this and you're supposed to be encouraged. You realize that God's going to shake the earth and yet you realize, I don't know if you've thought about what, how, how it happens that we get to spend eternity with God, how it, what eternal life looks like. I don't know if you've thought much about how we actually get into heaven. I don't know if you've spent time thinking about that. Here, it says that we align ourselves with God's kingdom. We live in light of that grace. And in that respect, we are, as Paul again prayed in the prayer at the start, we are carried along to heaven. We are wrapped up in that. We are invested in that. And we, by faith, we enter into that. That is our eternal heaven. And in part, that brings me huge comfort as I think, well, that is the story of my life anyway. I live inside of that grace. And I can look to that and I can go, That's, praise God. Because I can see life shaking. And I know that life will shake around me. And it's what I hold on to then. But I know ultimately it's going to shake. And I know because God's shaking it once and what holy remains, I know that's my confidence. I'll get to go to heaven. And I, and I, and I take joy in that. And at the same time, I wrestle so much with the reality of what that means. I say to myself, can I really believe this? Can I believe that God's going to shake the earth? Can I believe that the things that are secure are holy things? Can I believe that holiness 
the same God can prescribe that holiness is those two mountains. Can, they have, can those two mountains have any union? One, one God that terrifies you, one God that means that you have joy, that it can be joyful. Can I believe that that's what it is? Can I believe that God has demands like this? And so much of what I see around me, so much of my everyday experience makes me think, really? I don't see that. Can I see that? So much of what I see makes me think that. Unless I look at Jesus. Unless I stop and look at Jesus. So much of me would see what holiness demands, would see the God of the mountain, and would think, I'm sure I can't do that. I'm sure that can't be right. Unless I look at Jesus. And when I see Jesus, I see somebody who goes up the mountain and he's terrified. He sweats great drops of blood. And yet we read, it's the joy before him that means he gets there. He's terrified, but it's a joy. The demand on him for holiness, all of his 33 or whatever years that it was, it's huge. It's unfair, isn't it? Huge demand. The sin of the whole world put, a, put upon him, and yet that becomes life-giving to everybody. The world, 2,000 years ago, shook. Everything shook. Everyone was terrified, and yet Jesus remained and remains. When I look around me, I've got every reason in the world to drop those big lists of holiness. So have you. You've got every reason in the world to just discard them. Not, not to bend your ear towards them, just to ignore them. And when anybody like me starts reading them off, you can look at my life and go, I don't need to listen to him. Except if you look at that cross. And if you look at that cross for long enough, you are compelled to hang on to every single word that Paul or people like him writes. Those are the two reasons to listen. We are the holy ground. It's a great story. Hope that's helpful. Hope you keep um, thinking these things through.